Good learning listeners, welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata, where we bridge the gap between the scientific literature and teaching practices in the classroom. I'm your host, Robert, and I'm joined here by your other host, Joseph. Hey, it's good to be back on the podcast with you, Robert. I see you're trying out your dramatic voice. I'm always dramatic. I'm the drama queen of the podcast, let's be honest. Really? Okay, we can be honest. I'm I'm the I'm the source of entertainment. No, I can. They come. Can. They come to you for dry statistical analysis, and they come for me for satire, humor, mirth, and love. Mm. Maybe that's why we need to change our branding here. Because I don't think uh, you should be in that in that seat. How how dare you? I many people I know call me the funniest person they've ever met. I actually feel sorry for those people. Like, give me a list of their names, and I will definitely sort them out because that that no one should live like that you know what just offhand some of our close friends josh and alex um they both have said that i am the funniest person they've ever met (laughs) shout out to joshua and alex i've met joshua he's like he's uh, a superstar he's very intelligent so i I guess i'll take his word for it but um as for this alex character I, i don't know i don't know if i could trust his opinion um alex i will be providing you with robert's home address well, I'm quarantining right now. I'm still quarantining, um, as uh, a good Canadian should. So I, w- I definitely would. Uh, <laughs> I'd be very concerned if Alex showed up at my my residence without calling. Well, uh, good thing Alex is a very sneaky and quiet person. He's gonna he's gonna hate this this episode. I can tell you yeah, that. Just, I don't know why I'm picking on him. All right, let's <laughs> let's actually get started with today's episode. Um, so before we we move on, we should say that we're taking a, a short break soon. We're gonna take a Christmas break after this episode. We might get one interview in afterwards, depending on the scheduling. Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna try to get the interview in before you hear this episode, listeners. So if you hear the interview after, it means I messed up. But. Uh, we're going to take about four weeks off um, just for Christmas holidays and to work on some new content for you guys. Um, we're really starting to move in a different direction, I think, with the podcast. And we're doing that because we've really covered a lot of what we wanted to cover initially. I mean, our original goal was to just highlight the fact that there's a difference between the culture of teaching and um, the evidence of teaching. And by that, I mean to say what's popular in teaching wasn't always evidence-based. Um, And what was evidence-based wasn't always popular. And we wanted to sort of explain that difference with this podcast, and we wanted to to go over with the content um, what the actual body of evidence is saying about what is best practice in teaching right now. And I I think to some extent we have covered that. Um, That being said, um, being evidence-based practitioners means that we're staying up to date with research and that we evolve our opinion as research changes. Um, So we want to sort of use this podcast to highlight new research as it comes out moving forward. Um, but we also want to give other shorter form or shorter length episodes that go over practical tips for teaching and um, guides for implementation of certain practices. You know, uh, wow, I'm, I'm about to say it's five seasons. Wow, that's incredible that we've, we've gone five seasons. But um, I think this is a good, we don't always take a break. I think this is a good time to take a little bit of a break, retool, and uh, yeah, work on the, the you know the separate silos of formats and information that we're gonna come up with, just to make PNG podcast and all of our other services, our website, our online 
store to make it kind of more of a one-stop shop for your evidence-based teacher. So we, we really dialed into the, the, the evidence and give a really cursory look at it, just as Joseph has described. Now what we want to do is we want to build out, you know, kind of step-by-step step how an evidence, evidence-based teacher might go about their practice. You know, you get the research. How do you begin implementing it? How do you begin collecting data and then responding to that data? And I think once a teacher's really got, you know, that together, that's kind of like the pilot light in, in the whole engine. Uh, I guess I'm being very analogous right now, but the whole engine of of evidence-based teaching. And I think if we can do that during, during this podcast, uh, lighting the pilot light under a lot of uh, practitioners that really want to teach by the evidence and make an impact that way, I think we would come away from this podcast uh, quite successful. What do you think? Yeah, you know what, honestly, I'm, I'm just so grateful already that we've, you know, had such a, a wide reach. Um, the reach of the podcast has already outperformed what I would have expected uh, this format to do. I didn't think there'd be so many people out there who would care about improving their teacher's practice, especially in such a hyper-specific way as to base it off of quantitative research. Um, I'm, I'm just delighted that we've got to, to share this content with so many people, and it's, it's really awesome to see. It makes me feel like our, our reach on this, this planet has been a lot higher than had we just done our regular classroom teaching practices, which is super cool. Right. Um, so what I'll let you do is I'll let you just get into today's um, study, and, yeah. um, and then I'll just kind of chime in every once in a while in the natural breaks. How about that? All right. That sounds good. So today I'm not actually going over a very new study. I'm going over a study that I came across in research for other podcasts and articles that I didn't really get to talk about very in depth, but I thought deserves an in-depth review um, just because it's a fantastic study. And it's specifically looking at the efficacy of Fontes and Pinal. So this study does something cool in that it, it both um, reviews the previous research on the topic and then it does its own experiment um, to come up with its own data on the efficacy of Fontes and Pinal. Um, I thought this is important because Faunus Pinal's, as far as I'm aware, is probably the most widely used reading instruction program in the Western world. Um, and it doesn't appear that there's a lot of research to support it. Now, I've covered previous research in this podcast that looked at sort of the fundamental ideas behind Faunus Pinal without actually looking at Faunus Pinal itself. Um, so this study is looking at Faunus Pinal itself. So it's specifically reviewing other studies that have um, compared Faunus Pinal to another reading intervention to see how it performs, and then it does its own experiment. So the name of the study is called An Experimental Evaluation of Guided Reading and Explicit Interventions for Primary Grade Students at Risk for Reading Difficulties. It was published online 2014, April 14th, and uh, it was done by Carolyn A. E. Denton, Jack M. Fletcher, um, W. Pat Taylor, Amy Barth, and Sharon Vaughn. Um, so I'm gonna start off with just going over their review of other studies. It, it found four studies that did an experiment comparing a Fontes and Pinal program to a non-Fontes and Pinal program. So the first one is um, done by Hall Sabi and McCullen in 2005, and they compared two versions of guided reading, and one with a focus on text structure and one um, without. Um, and they compared both with a no-treatment control group. So both groups in this instructional group were guided reading. 
and essentially font different types of fontis and l type programs or balanced literacy type programs and both did significantly better than the control group but were statistically insignificant i think this is the least um relevant of the studies reviewed though because there's no explicit reading instruction group in this um, study in the second study we have one done by dimock in 1998 and they do uh, eight to ten year olds in New Zealand and they compare them and there these I should say students were particularly chosen for having reading difficulties and they have a guided reading group and they compare it to a group that gets explicit text structure and reading practice uh, instruction um, in this group the the group that had explicit reading instruction outperformed the guided reading group by a statistically significant amount and the third study, um, guided reading, was compared in Hong Kong by Nyack and Sylvia in 2013. And these students were randomly assigned into one of the two groups. One group, I should say one of three groups. One group was guided reading, one group was no supplemental intervention, so control. And the last group though, was the teachers were given an ebook on reading interventions. Um, so. There was no statistical significance between the guided reading group and the ebook group. However, both did better than the control group. Again, this study I think seems less relevant because we don't know the content of the ebook, um, and I don't know how one ebook is supposed to statistically significantly improve someone's teaching without knowing what the content of that ebook was. I do think it's interesting that they were the two groups were tied, and I do think it's interesting to say that they were both better than the placebo group or the no, the no um, intervention group. Lastly, I think this is the most important study, a study by Savage, Abrami, Hips, and Dialt in 2009 um, examined the effects of two different um, computer-based phonic programs and compared them to um, Fonts and Finale's Balanced Literacy and Guided Reading Program. Um, they reported significantly better outcomes for both the phonics programs compared to the, better, the Balanced Literacy programs on letter sound knowledge, listening, comprehension, phonemic awareness, reading comprehension, and reading fluency. So basically reading on all outcomes, the two phonics programs outperformed the phonics Pinal program. I think that was the most statistically significant one. And it's also interesting because they compared two separate programs of the same philosophical principle. So essentially it's almost like two experiments in one, almost like two separate studies. What I hear from this having been a part of this podcast so long, we often see examples where any intervention, if it's clear and um, and it's planned, usually outperforms the placebo. So we have to take that into account when we see both uh, interventions doing better than the placebo. And I would say in, in the studies where either reading was not specifically being assessed then you you saw less of a difference or or not a statistically significant difference between explicit instruction and the guide and reading practices um, but where you see reading specifically being assessed and it being assessed in a clear way with focus on execution then you saw a greater difference statistical difference between the explicit instruction practices and the guided reading practices and even more so when we're talking specifically about phonics strategies and phonics interventions we see that they're continuously outperforming guided reading practices or fontes and banal and um, also i think when it comes to going the next step and reading these studies for yourself 
as an evidence-based teacher, it's very important to look at whether or not the reading itself, reading is being assessed or not. I think often, even though a reading intervention is being looked at, we got to look at um, how it is then being ex- um, assessed in the study. I feel a lot of a lot of studies get conflated with each other, and a lot of the confusion comes with the the design of some of these studies. And remember, it's super important to be that picky about these studies because you have the file drawer situation where a lot of studies don't get published because they're not showing any uh, significant statistical data. So there could be tons more studies that show no difference. And so when we get these studies, we got to be very picky about them. Yeah, I would agree with that. Another point I want to make is that when you think about it, I, I thought it was interesting that so few studies have looked at specifically the efficacy of Francis Pinal um, mm-hmm. within comparison. So I think this study specifically started to find studies that compared Faunus and Pinal, which in my opinion is the most valid type of study. Right. And there's only four done, and two of those do not look very well done, admittedly. So we have basically, you know, one good study on Fontes and Pinal, uh, one mediocre study, and that's pretty much it. So the, to me, that's that's problematic for the, the the level of confidence that the world has placed in Fontes and Pinal. That wasn't enough. Well, we are fortunate that the study that I, we're going to look at today, I think, is very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, and is a sort of adds that body of evidence in pointing to a direction of the efficacy of Fonce Pinal's programming. Uh, we've seen through the research that this is some of this is by design. I feel like within our profession, there's an incentive not to do research on things that are already supported by the social forces within our profession. And I think that's that's literally what our podcast is meant to address. That in a lot of other professions, such as engineering and medicine, it's actually the opposite case, where the more something is used, the more something becomes common practice, the more scrutinized it becomes. Uh, I, I think we're in the opposite position where often, you know, if number talks or Fontes de Benel, if it's being used everywhere, then there seems to be a de-incentivization of research around it. And I think I, I hope that eventually our podcast will have some effect on that reality in our profession. Yeah, I, I will say on that note, I think if the the advocates of this type of programming would say, well, there's tons of research. It's just the type of research they would point to as being proving its efficacy. We mm-hmm. would disagree with philosophically on the validity of in the sense that they would probably point to qualitative studies. Um, there's tons of qualitative papers out there. You know, where it's based off classroom observations, where it's based off theoretical ideas, where people are putting, you know, an academic article out supporting the idea of Fontes and Pinal. Um, But in our opinion, you can't prove efficacy of an idea by saying, you know, in academic terms, saying I sat in a classroom, watched Fontes and Pinal, and it was amazing. Or by saying I sat in a classroom and I watched the ideas of Fontes and Pinal, it was amazing. Or by synthesizing other observational data and theoretical data into a paper and saying, look at all these academic papers that are in support of Fontes Pinal. Uh, in my opinion, you have to have experimental data that looks at, we implemented this in a class and reading levels improved this much, and then compare it to another intervention and say, we implemented this intervention in a class and reading levels improved this much, 
And it's that type of data that establishes efficacy. Right. Because you can look at any reading program on the planet, pretty basically, and find theoretical and observational data to support its um, implementation. Um, it's it's kind of like the idea that, you know, everybody has an anecdote to back up their argument. And right. it, this theoretical and observational data can be great for fleshing out ideas, for coming up with new ideas. It can be great for coming up, figuring out why ideas work or don't work. Um, but it can't establish efficacy. And I think the the people who are suggesting it can are being academically dishonest. And I know that's a bold statement, but I'm going to sit with it. Some could consider that a bold statement. I think in science, it would not be bold at all. It wouldn't be controversial at all. I feel like in science, the first things you're taught is that qualitative data and qualitative analysis is really where you put all your faith in the researcher, in their ability to decipher meaning. Um, and that's usually only used to de- to come up with new experimental questions that can be sorted out quantitatively in the future or to, to, to establish some level of context around a question. But it never can be used as reliable evidence to support a practice going forward. For that, you need quantitative uh, data and analysis. And the quantitative data analysis, really the strength of it is the research design. So you spend so many years just focusing on what makes a great research design and how to how to uh, put uh, the data or the results of that design into context. And I feel like just the reality of our situation in our profession is that I don't think we're often taught as teachers or admin in our profession of how to really look at research, how to evaluate the design, how to put the results into context. And also, even more uh, detrimentally, I feel like the difference between qualitative and quantitative analysis and research. We've experienced a lot of teachers that really don't see the importance of quantitative data at all and, and actually sometimes can get upset about its use. Now, I don't want to go so far off on a tangent here, but I, I think um, now that we're getting into these specific studies, uh, I think it's port, uh, important to bring that up a couple times. Yeah, I, I, I agree with 100% of everything you just said. I just think, I think some of it's not so much a value problem. I think it's just a lack of understanding within our field of how research is done. And I think that's a large part of what we're trying to accomplish with this podcast is changing. So let's let's break into the study that we're looking at today. So this is the main study we're going to be focusing on, done by the original authors discussed. So they're looking at first grade students and they have a sample size of 1,056. They have uh, essentially a two-month-long intervention period. In the primary group, they have a Fontes-Pinal group. In the Fontes-Pinal group, their primary focus is on guided reading, as defined by Fontes-Pinal, which is essentially really just silent reading with a teacher there um, offering to help students if they struggle with a word. And they also allow a little bit of quiet, uh, what they call choral reading, which is where the whole class reads the same text at the same time. They're allowed a little bit of fluency instruction in the Francis Pinal group, but not a lot. Where in the Francis, and this fluency instruction works where essentially they're doing repeated reading silently. So this is an idea we discussed in our um, PNG reading list series, um, where the students read the same text over and over again every day um, for a short period of time. And then lastly, they're allowed to do. Um, five minutes a day of vocabulary instruction. 
um, but they have to use specifically the words up program, um, which I, I suppose is a, a program endorsed by Fonts and Pinnell. Um, in the other group, they have to um, give explicit instruction of phonics. Um, they're also given explicit instruction of spelling and explicit instruction on um, um, spelling strategies specific to uh, decoding and phonetic approaches. So basically looking at word families. Um, now, uh, before we move on into the results, I'm going to let um, Robert comment on the, um, the layout of that study. When I was going over the design of this, I was really excited because, as we said before, we don't always get um, really well-designed studies and, and even meta-studies sometimes. When I was reading, actually, the intervention procedures, that's what excited me the most because often a question in my mind is execution. Uh, how clear did they execute the different interventions? Uh, I feel like if that's not addressed in the study, um, and sometimes it is addressed, they, they just don't uh, publish it that way. But I think it's very important to publish that so that we know um, that we can rely on the strategy itself instead of it being conflated or noise in the data from improper execution. Um, yeah, I believe they also were given additional training on the specific type of teaching method they were using. So right. if they were in the Fonts Penal group, they received Fonts Penal specific instruction. And mm -hmm. if they're in the phonics group, they receive phonics specific instruction. It actually says either they were certified in those practices or they had uh, experience in clin clinical tutoring uh, using those practices, which is just like stellar, in, in my opinion, um, and allows me to really feel more comfortable about um, whatever the data results are going to end up being. Uh, they actually looked at several metrics and guided reading actually came out on top in some of them. But the vast majority of the metrics, um, the phonics group outperformed. So I'm going to break them down all if I can. Um, so the first one they looked at was letter word recognition. Um, and in this one, guided reading came out on top um, with an effect size of um, 0.32 um, with a p-value of 0 0.01. And this is all using a Cohen's D um, effect size calculation. In word identification, which I would say is the most important part of reading, being able to actually know the word you're reading. In fact, mm -hmm. I almost feel like nothing else really matters anywhere near as important as this. Um, explicit reading came out better than the control group and the, the guided reading group. Um, and it had um, an effect size of 0.33 uh, comparatively. However, um, the p-value was slightly on the high end. On comprehension, uh, explicit reading came out uh, on top again with um, an effect size of 0.33. On passage comprehension, explicit reading um, came out on top with an effect size of 0.25. In terms of efficiency, explicit reading came out on top with an effect size of 0.29. Um, in terms of fluency, explicit reading came out on top with an effect size of 0.23. And those were the metrics that I thought were relevant to the audience. There are other metrics in there like word attack that I don't know are totally relevant. What are your thoughts on that, Robert? Basically, everything in this study, I feel like it confirms a lot of the notions that I've already had over reviewing studies from before and my own personal practice as well. I feel like there are certain things that I, I don't I don't understand where the notion that they can just be 
um, taught through osmosis. Like if we're gonna talk, if we're gonna teach comprehension and reading. I don't actually relate to the idea that let's just read in front of the student more and more and get them to read more and more, and that over time is automatically going to bring up their comprehension. I think I think it, it can in the sense that you're relying on the student's innate intelligence, but I think to imagine that that isn't an intervention that could be used for a student that's struggling or for a student that needs special education, it just boggles the mind. So I, like, for instance, one of the pieces of data that's in, that I've always looked at in my own class every year to kind of prove to myself the concept of explicit instruction is I will I will let my students begin to read passages and do quizzes on um, specifically addressing comprehension. And I always spend the first month not giving them any explicit instruction on those quizzes. And then I start the next month, the first week of that month, by giving them just two points every week of a new explicit uh, instruction around how to better tackle comprehending a passage. And uh, the one I always start with is read the read the quiz questions first before you read. And I mean, the impact of that, that I've recorded every single year I've taught a language is just, it's out of the realm of questioning. And I feel like if I, if I spent the next three months waiting for them to gain that amount of results just by getting them to read it more and to read it in front of them more, sort of in a guided reading type fashion, I feel like I would be holding my breath. The the first, I just want to say, I want to be careful with, you know, saying more intelligent persons, just because I think as much as we've been critical of the multiple intelligence theory as it's presented today, I think it is, it might be reductive to say that people who can't learn from a Fontes Penal style reading are unintelligent. I think there are some very brilliant people out there who struggle with reading um, without explicit reading instruction. That being said, I, I do think it's very clear that some people obviously can learn to read through this type of approach. And in fact, in some ways, I was surprised how small the difference was between the phonics program and the phonics Pinel program. I expected it to be much bigger, and it wasn't. It was statistically significant, but uh, the difference between them wouldn't be what I would call a high-yield strategy versus a low-yield strategy, per se. Um, you know, And it depends on where those statistics fall. I mean, I would say the average effect size difference was 0.3. Um, but if, you know, Fontes Penal comes out compared to placebo at around 0.4 and Volcanic um, comes out at 0.7, that can be the difference between a high yield strategy, I'd say, and a low yield strategy. But um, just the difference in itself wasn't. So I think what we're, we're seeing here and what we're capturing without realizing it is that the difference really probably, and I think this is something where, you know, qualitative evidence actually comes into play because this is something we hear over and over again from qualitative observations is that the students who do struggle with reading have a really hard time learning to read from these very implicit instruction methods, and they need these more explicit reading instruction methods to be successful. Now, sort of the the uh, Fondus Penal crowd has come out in part not by being saying we're whole language people, but by saying, like, let's just give the phonics to the students who need it and not worry about it for everybody else because not everybody needs it. I think the problem with that is it relies on the system appropriately identifying the students who do need the explicit instruction and then providing them specific target instruction on, on top. And I don't think we can have faith in education systems to do that effectively because I don't, I've never, I've worked in several countries, provinces, 
and school boards. And I've never seen a school board that had the resources set up efficiently enough to accomplish that task. And I don't think there's the funding to accomplish tasks like that. I think that's why it's better just to give explicit reading instruction to the entire group. And, you know, this is, I think, an example of what's better for the for the group is also better for the, or sorry, what's better for the individual is probably also better for the group. By, I would imagine that the main reason phonics comes up better is because those lagging students have higher scores and it doesn't bring down the average. Um, and I think some of the p-values I noticed were quite high, and I would imagine that's probably why the p-values are quite high, because the group might have done fine, but there might have been individuals who did really poorly in the um, phonics, but not one. Yeah, I mean that. That's where I, I'm thinking at this. And I, I think it is an example also of that, you know, structure always beats no structure. The, the more structured group did better than the less structured group of instruction. And I, I don't think that's a, a coincidence. And, and, you know, I think even going farther than that, I think one of the aspects of structure beats no structure. Often we look at that from the teacher's perspective, like if a teacher's going in with a specific plan, and they're looking to make that plan work, you're, you tend to see an increase in the learning uh, in the classroom. But actually, I think it goes farther than that. Now that I've spent so much time executing plans and collecting the data and then trying to execute it even better the next year, what I've noticed is that if I implement a system that is routine and doesn't change as much throughout the year, um, I notice better results. And I think what that is, is that once uh, students get a routine and there isn't such a, a drastic difference from from assessment to assessment to assessment in the format and the instructions behind those assessments and in the formative assessments as well in the practice, they always benefit from that. Even even with, I would say, lower year strategies, the students are benefiting from the idea of not having to learn all these different expectations or all these different assessment instructions. So I always put, you know, weekly tasks where the instruction doesn't change, only I, I raise the expectations in terms of their difficulty over time. And I find that I think a lot is being lost. A lot of what we would call time under quality instruction is being lost to students trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. Uh, they're trying to figure out the instructions for each question in a, an assessment, and they're trying to understand what the what the expectations are for all these different types of strategies and interventions. So I think when you come in with one one with a general more focused plan where the instructions aren't changing all the time, like guided reading for your um, for your language program, I think you just benefit from just that alone that the students aren't confused about how we're going to be doing this and what we're expected to do. And then the teacher is also more focused in what they're looking for and how they're going to do it. I think if we can add that, if we can add that to strategies that are actually proven to be more successful or have a greater impact on the learning just on their face, then we're, we're, we're just kind of multi we're adding a multiplier to our results. What would you say, Joseph? No, I, I completely agree. As I was listening to you talk, I was just thinking I've noticed the same thing. Um, I think repetition can actually be really good in a classroom, and I think it's been one of my greatest weapons um, um, for successes. Rather than, you know, I don't, I don't typically plan lessons that are dramatically different each week. And you know, the opponent would say, well, that's that's not fun for the student. Um, but I think what it, it does is 
one, it lowers my planning time to keep lessons in a sort of a format. Um, and I, I think that's actually in itself is very important to me. I'd like to be very efficient with my time. But two, I mean, it keeps the clarity of the expectations really clear for the students. It allows more progress, I think, because it, everything just sort of builds off of each other. And, you know, you're giving similar practice work each week, but you're focusing on different aspects and you're increasing expectations over time. Honestly, I think that's the best way to teach. Um, I think that's a lot of what our framework, um, which we use, is, is trying to accomplish. And uh, I think that's a lot of what RTI is sort of pushing people towards doing. And I think if you use any kind of action research framework, reaction research framework, you will eventually end up at that point. You will realize from your own data that mm. it's consistency is, is your friend, not your enemy. And I remember being a first year teacher, um, coming fresh out of teacher's college and thinking I was going to have every single day of the week shock and awe. Every lesson plan was going to be dramatically different. And I stayed up to like 1130 at night planning all my lessons every single day. And you know what? My teaching results were probably nowhere near as high as what I get today. And uh, I was spending, you know, hours and hours planning. And as much as I'm sure my students had fun, um, I don't know that fun is always the, the highest priority in a classroom. I, I know that's um, sacrable to say in some circles. Um, but I also feel like I don't have a problem with poor building either, you know. Not to sound, uh, not to to brag here, but most of my students will often tell me that I'm their favorite teacher or one of their favorite teachers. But I don't think that should be the goal of a teacher to be the the, the kid's favorite teacher. Actually, I think if you're walking into a classroom thinking I want to be the kid's favorite teacher of all time, I think you're walking in with the wrong goal. The goal when you walk in that classroom should be I want to help these students to succeed in life, to just have fun lessons, to you know watch movies and play games and do very little learning and have low expectations of them. And that's not, that's not a, a positive thing for the students learning in my experience. Yeah, I would say that I would say that I agree with most of what you're saying. I just, I want to make it clear that through evidence-based practices, I think it's actually a better chance, a better approach at actually uh, being effective in the class in terms of the education and being fun and engaging and building rapport. I feel like there's sometimes a lot of teachers, especially new teachers, you often don't have time for both. When you're learning how you want to be as a teacher and how you're going to go about your practice, I find that often you have to sacrifice time on how do how do I learn to build more rapport? How do I be more engaging? Or how do I be effective in in my education practices? And I feel like you don't have to sacrifice so much of that learning curve if you start off with proven effective strategies if you start off with proven effective strategies then you'll already start to see the increase in in the results in your classroom in terms of education and then that actually gives you more time to then learn how to build more rapport in your classroom how to make the classroom a fun and safe environment and inclusive environment and all those other great things so i, I don't look at them as an either or and I don't think I've ever really had trouble uh, building rapport because I, I used to be a tutor before. So I, I kind of already had that down. Me, I just wanted to be uh, effective in a classroom where I had 30 students instead of one. And I think that's what really primed me for being more open to, to evidence because I, I wanted something that I can focus on and know that it's already been proven to be effective so I can just focus on the execution of that. The reason I bring this up is I feel like I don't I don't want to discourage teachers that are listening that actually think 
that it is super important to be uh, to have a great rapport with your students, to make sure that students are having a great experience in, at school, and that the emotional the emotional well being of the students and um, whether the students are having a great time at school and in their education is actually most important. I think you can have that notion. And I think to in order to support that notion, you should be even more interested in evidence-based practices uh, because I think that they would give you your effectiveness and the time that you that it takes to build that kind of rapport and engagement in the classroom. I, I just actually don't think, uh, you know, exciting lesson plans are the number one source of rapport. I think yeah. rapport no, I comes agree. from, um, you know, having a sense of humor, being um, friendly to your students, from talking to your students, from getting to know your students on a personal level, from caring about your students. Students know if you care about them. Uh, you can't fake that. Um, uh, so you just have to tell yourself, I care. Right. Uh, even if you're tired that day, even if you had a long week, you have to care about your students. And uh, similarly, I think, you know, extracurriculars is a really great source of rapport. Like I've had years where I've, you know, coached six or seven teams. Um, students see that students know, know what that means. Students can tell that your coaching directly correlates to your caring about them. And that's not to say that everyone has to coach, although I'd love to see more teachers coaching. Um, it, it is to say that if you do, that'll, that'll help your rapport. And I think, in some ways, that might help your rapport more than, you know, putting on a movie. I think sometimes students also know that if you just put on a lot of movies, it's not that you're a great teacher. It's that you don't care. Um, you know, students are smarter than we give them credit for. Um, but we're, we're kind of out of time today, actually. So uh, if you like the podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe or leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you want to check out more of our content, you can go to www.pedagogynongrata.com. If you want to follow us on Facebook, you can search us under the same brand name. Or if you'd like to purchase some of our lesson plans, smart board games, or unit plans, you can head over to teacherspayteachers.com and search our brand name, Pedagogy Non Grata. Um, or if you want to see uh, pictures of us and my cute dog, you can follow me on Instagram at PNGTeacherJoseph. That's it for now, folks, and until next time, bye for now.